following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. The front room or vestibule of a building tells us a lot about what to expect inside. Frequently you go into a school and the very first thing you see is a, is a plaque on the wall telling you where different buildings are located. Or you go into a bank and the first thing you see is the counter where you're expected to approach. Or you enter into a royal palace and of course you know the interior designer very carefully set everything in place to leave a particular impression on you. And tonight we are crossing the threshold into the vestibule, the front room, dare I say the lobby of the New Testament, and specifically into the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew has very carefully, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, set everything in place, all of these names, to leave a particular impression and to give a particular lesson to each of us and to anyone who's read this book or heard it read since its publication in the first century. Each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, shows us Jesus Christ and his life in a particular light. They're historical accounts, which we can trust to be wholly accurate and reliable as historical records, but they're not mere reports of our Lord's travel itineraries and sayings. No, each gospel has a spiritual aim and a heavenly agenda. So when we come to Matthew chapter 1 and we read this genealogy, we can ask ourselves, what is Matthew doing? What's his purpose here? What's his aim? See, in this respect, the Gospels are more like holy memoirs than they are like encyclopedia entries. They're more like purposeful sermons with a clear point than they are bare journalistic retellings of news events. Matthew's Gospel, and Matthew himself, is primarily concerned to unveil for us Jesus Christ the Savior as the promised Messiah of the Jewish people who is now presently in his risen state King of Kings over all the nations of the earth. And therefore Matthew addresses himself to the Jews and in so doing begins his presentation of how God blesses all nations under this Christ the King. And this is evident even from this list of names at the opening of his gospel. This is the vestibule, and he's carefully placed everything to leave an impression. Matthew opens his gospel with a glorious family portrait, if you will, of the doctrine of salvation. He tells us something about God's saving work in Christ Jesus through this genealogy. Christ's royal lineage here, recorded for us, shows us God's worldwide, gracious, and unstoppable purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. Again, what I'm seeking to show you tonight is that Christ's royal lineage shows us God's worldwide, gracious, and unstoppable purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. Matthew divides this genealogy into three very obvious sections according to verse 17. And so 
We're going to just work through the text uh, with that same division. First, we'll see God's worldwide purpose to save in verses 1 through the first half of verse 6. And then we'll consider God's gracious purpose to save from the second half of verse 6 through verse 11. And then we'll consider God's unstoppable purpose to save in verses 12 through 17. So let's begin at the beginning with verse 1, looking at God's worldwide purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. We note here, after introducing this scroll book or record of the generations or genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, that Matthew indeed starts and begins with Abraham. And this is deeply significant for understanding the scope of this genealogy. He's reaching all the way back to Abraham. And why does he do that? Because God has promised to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed and descendants who follow after him in this line. We sang in Psalm 47 at the beginning of our service from verse 9, I'll repeat this, Leaders of nations gather round to serve as sons of Abraham's God. It's an interesting note. Abraham is the father of what nation? The Jews, of the Israelites. And yet, the leaders of all nations will gather round to serve as sons of this Abraham's God. Now, God's actual words to Abraham himself from Genesis 12 are that I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, after that great test of Abraham's faith in, in Genesis chapter 22, when he takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah and proves that he, in fact, believes that God is true to his promise, even unto the death of his promised seed, God adds uh, this line and clarifies how it is that the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. He says, in your seed or in your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, because you have believed in me. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture and Hebrews 11 and elsewhere that it was Abraham's faith, his fear of God, which was truly the remarkable thing about him. This promise, this promise of blessing to all the families or all the nations of the earth, it's repeated to Isaac in Genesis 26 verse 4, and then again to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 14. Interestingly, both instances of assurance that the promise is still active, that it's still working through the line. And what promise? That they would be a blessing to all nations, not merely to their own family. Now, why does Matthew stop at Abraham then? If I'm making this point that he's showing us a worldwide purpose to save, shouldn't he go all the way back up to Adam, or at least to Noah, the fathers of us all, to, of all nations? Why stop at Abraham? Well, as we will see again and again as we work through the Gospel of Matthew, Abraham's primary, though not his only, audience is Jewish. And so he needs to make the case, very simply, that Jesus is heir to King David's throne. 
He really needs to prove only that Jesus is a descendant of Zerubbabel, the last recorded descendant of David in the Old Testament. But yet, he goes all the way back to Abraham. So the real question is not, why stop at Abraham, but why go back to Abraham at all in the first place? And the answer to that is found here in this promise that God makes to bless all the families or all the nations of the earth by, in, and through Abram's or Abraham's seed and descendants. This has a very simple application to us even at this point. When crises erupt around the world, as they seem to do every hour on the hour, we need to remember that God has not abandoned the world. No, not at all. God has a global purpose in sending Christ, in bringing salvation. He has a worldwide purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. And so when you're troubled by recent events and distresses in different nations of the earth, and particularly those nations which seem not to have the light of the gospel, so you wonder what hope do these people have, you can take courage and hope in this, that God has a worldwide saving purpose, reflected even here in this genealogy running up to Abraham. Now, the second uh, item of note here, particularly from verses 2 to 5, uh, moving further into the genealogy, is that uh, God includes Gentiles in the covenant line. Look at verse uh, 2b with me. He starts with Judah and his brothers, the tribal patriarchs, establishing that this is not just a list of ancestors of Jesus, but it's a family history, more appropriately, really, a, a national history, a history of the people of Israel. And such histories usually glorify the group, don't they? Usually they're not intended to glorify other peoples from outside the group. And so verses 3 through 5 have some surprises for us that we need to note as we consider the significance of this genealogy. The royal line admits of some less than noble or pure-blooded Gentile names. We see Tamar, the Canaanite, who seduced her father-in-law Judah to conceive Perez and Zerah in Genesis 38. We then see Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, from Joshua chapter 2. And then we see Ruth, who, though virtuous, as I hope I established over the summer in our series through Ruth, was yet of the despised nation of Moab, forbidden to marry into Israel for ten generations. So why include these women of low reputation while omitting or leaving out the likes of Sarah and Rebekah and Leah and Rachel, the mothers of Israel? Because though Matthew is dealing with Jewish bloodlines, Jewish national history, and the genealogy of the Jewish Messiah, he is on God's worldwide errand to secure justification for people from every nation, that men from every family under heaven might be blessed in Abraham's seed. And the instrument of that justification, that pardoning of sin and acceptance as righteous in God's sight, the instrument of that work is not membership in a particular family or a particular ethnic group. No, for the blessing is for people from all families and all nations and tribes and tongues if they possess faith in God who is the source of all blessing, who is the source of Abraham's blessing. Now this is very good news to those of us who are not of Jewish descent. 
In fact, this is good news to those of us who did not grow up in Christian homes or in covenant community homes, isn't it? This is good news to us who might be carrying about within us and upon us the weight of guilt and shame for sins committed in the past. Consider this. God will accept and even honor the Canaanite seductress Tamar, the immoral patriarch Judah, the harlot of Jericho Rahab, the impoverished Moabites Ruth, through faith, not through blood, not through family, but through faith. Children, I want you to pay very close attention to this now. You all are greatly privileged to be growing up in covenant community homes. You have parents who love you, who have uh, sought for your spiritual good at every turn, though not perfectly. But your baptism, your parents' church membership, your family name will not save you. No, not fully and not finally. God will justify those who know Him, trust Him, and believe His Word. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.7 wrote this. He said, Know this, that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then in verse 9 in that same chapter, Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Galatians 3.9 can you be named with Abraham as the believer in God, as God's friend? Children, can you be named with Abraham as a believer in God? Or are you simply the sons and daughters of believers? God serves as nobody's grandfather. He's a heavenly father. And he has a worldwide purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. And he does that through the gift of faith. And so, children, I just, I put this before you. Trust not in your family name, in that last name that you have, that you know hopefully how to write down. Trust not in, in, in your blood or, or your heritage. Rather, trust in the name of the only one who saves, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I challenge you now, even this night, if you have yet to, to settle this within yourself, to grasp God by faith, to Believe in Him and to search the Scriptures each and every day in order to know how to live then as a believer in full obedience to God. Now, for the adults here, as we consider the future of this church and what we're doing, God's worldwide purpose to save even the Gentiles is expressed elsewhere in Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, and it comes as a great motivation to us. Isaiah says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and, um, and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come. And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. We should yearn for this vision to come to reality. Do you yearn and long for the conversion of the nations and kingdoms of the world unto the kingdom of heaven? That they would be turned out of darkness and into light. That they might experience the blessings of Abraham's God. Oh, that the strangers to God's covenant, our neighbors, our friends, our relatives, like Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, would ascend the mountain of the Lord as those with a claim on God's covenant promises. Brothers and sisters, let us yearn with expectant longing and hope 
Let this be a grand theme in our supplications and our petitions as we bring them before the throne of grace, that God would save the nations, that all nations would experience great blessing in Abraham's seed. For God is able. Which brings me to my next observation. If you look at verse 6, this block of the genealogy ends on a real high note. Jesse was the father of David the king. The first group of 14 names ends with David in verse 6. But what is David? He is the king. The king. And why does Matthew mention this detail? He doesn't give a, a, a title to anybody else. Well, it's because God made David the king. The same God who called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, who opened Sarah's womb in Genesis 21. The God of Israel's miraculous exodus out of Egypt. The God of Joshua's conquest of Canaan is the God who made David and set him as king over Israel, who built his house by divine decree in 2 Samuel 7, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Bringing partial fulfillment, as I argued in that sermon, to the promises made to Abraham. At verse 6, King David's place in Christ's lineage is a high point. It confirms for us the power of God not only to decree worldwide salvation, but to accomplish that worldwide purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. God not only has a purpose to save, but He can, He does, and He will accomplish that worldwide purpose. Now, the next, session, the next section considers another aspect of the doctrine of salvation, of God's purpose to save expressed in the subsequent and often tragic history of this King David's dynasty. Not only is God's purpose worldwide, but as we see now, God's purpose is gracious. God has a gracious purpose to save from verses 6 through 11. Look at them with me. In verse 6, we see a great need for grace established here, don't we? David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Literally, the Greek says, by her who had been Uriah's. So Bathsheba's name isn't even really mentioned in the Greek. She's just referred to as the wife of Uriah. And David took her from him, didn't he? We've been taken to the high point of Christ's royal lineage but then the second half of the very same verse immediately calls to mind another title given to this David, this king, through the prophet Nathan. What did Nathan say to David? He said, you are the man. You are the man. You are the one who committed military murder and adultery and stole your faithful servants, one of your mighty men's wife. Specifically, David is the man who stole Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then from 2 Samuel chapter 11 through the ends of Kings and of Chronicles, the royal house of David the king seems much more like a house of royal disappointments, doesn't it? This history then establishes the need for divine grace. It, it teaches us that God's purpose to save, His worldwide purpose to save, comes to fruition only by His grace. If it's not a gracious purpose, it's not going to happen. Because David's house certainly doesn't deserve the blessings of Abraham. It's not worthy to carry the blessings of God to the next generation. It's true. There are some good kings here. 
And in them, the nobility of Christ flashes forth for us with eager anticipation. But consider the the overall narrative of the kings. Young and old alike can tell when we work through these together that this list of names takes us from David's coronation, a high point, to Jeconiah's exile, the lowest of lows in the national history of the people of Israel. The character of the house of David then swung from the poles of righteousness and rebellion until it finally crashed and burned into the dustbin of history. In verse 11, um, and by no means am I going to go through each one of these names and give little vignettes of these kings' lives. To do so would be uh, really not serving the purpose of the sermon. But in verse 11, as, as we get to the end here, we see Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And so it's important to, to highlight what this deportation was, what this exile really was. It was the consequence of the sins, not only of King David and his house, but of all the people as they fell further and further into rebellion against God. First, David's earthly kingdom fell far short of God's standard outlined for the kings in Deuteronomy 17. And so Jeconiah and his brothers, and I take this to mean as the nation as a whole, because we don't actually know that Jeconiah had any biological brothers, at least they're not named for us in Scripture. But the nation as a whole, with their king at the head, suffers the judgment foretold in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29. Namely, without going there, the, the consequence or the judgment of troubles, pestilence, famine, war, plague, and exile from the land, from the presence, from the face of God. In Jeconiah's reign, the royal dignity of David's house has dwindled and diminished to virtual obscurity as the kingdom is swept away to Babylon, effectively wiped off the map. The consequence of exile was God's righteous judgment against the sins of the people of Israel and of their kings. What is the consequence today for you and for me? Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death doesn't it? And Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 add this warning to us. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So this is, this is for the people of God. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Assuming that there are some within the assembly who have head knowledge that has not translated itself into saving faith. And verses 30 and 31 of that same chapter in Hebrews 10. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, the judgment of God against sin is righteous, it's weighty, it's never condemned in Scripture, it's never maligned in Scripture. It is appropriately severe. He has not changed from Old Testament into New Testament. And Matthew reminds us of that by mentioning the deportation, which was itself an act of God through his servant Nebuchadnezzar. He must judge unrepentant sinners, even those enrolled on the membership rolls of churches today. Even those born into Christian families. 
That judgment is separation from his life-giving presence. That judgment is the painful experience of unending death and the torments of hell. And Jesus is going to talk about that judgment again and again as we work through this gospel. It's important to understand it from the outset. God's holiness will not mix with man's sin. They're like oil and water. You put them in a cup together and they separate. And while there's yet breath in your lungs, if you haven't already, you must flee from that judgment of separation by the one means provided to you. And that is the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus Christ. You see, the exile as a consequence for sin in our text testifies not only to God's just judgment, but also to the people's great need for a Savior. Praise God, the genealogy doesn't end here. It's a need which God purposes to meet by His grace. Matthew's message ultimately is a gospel. It's a proclamation of good news. And he is saying, though you have been faithless, even unto exile... Like the Old Testament people of God, God remains faithful and gracious. He has a gracious purpose to save a people for himself. When Christ says those sweet words, come unto me, in Matthew 11, verse 28, he speaks not as a judge, but as a deliverer, as a gracious Savior. And so the challenge for us is, will you believe the one who saves sinners? Will you trust in his word and flee to him from the coming wrath of God? And that brings us to the third division here or the second division, the third part of the genealogy. We've seen God's worldwide purpose to save. We've seen God's gracious purpose to save. And now we see God's unstoppable purpose to save through the most obscure list of names of the three sections. Look at verse 12 with me. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and then Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Starting with Abihud, the rest of the names appear nowhere else in Holy Scripture. These are utterly obscure names. In fact, they're humiliated names. At verse 12, coming to the third and final segment of Christ's lineage, notice how Matthew repeats this, this, this phrase, the deportation to Babylon. It's this deportation, this exile, this event that divides Jeconiah's life between two stages. You have pre-exile Jeconiah and then post-exile Jeconiah, effectively making him count two times. And so I need to mention this. At the end of the register of the Judean kings and at the beginning of the record of the exile, and this is the way we should understand the division here and how it's functioning. When we get to verse 17, we'll see that uh, Matthew under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that the genealogy is divided into three sets of 14. But if you're careful, you'll notice that in the third set, there's only 13 names if we keep up the pattern of not counting Jeconiah a second time. Because we didn't count David twice in the second set of names. So what do we do with this if there's only 13 names uh, between verses 12 and 17? Well, the way that we should understand this is, um, is that this 
deportation to Babylon, which is mentioned twice for us, and is given by Matthew in verse 17 as the marker dividing the genealogy, makes Jeconiah then count twice, both under the register of kings and the record of the exile. And that way, we, cannot, we can then get to our 14 names in each set, in each division, or each part of the genealogy. Because Jeconiah is not the marker here. David was a marker between 1 and 2. But Jeconiah is not the marker between 2 and 3. It's the deportation to Babylon that's the marker. And that leads to the question then of what is the significance of this number 14? Why does Matthew give us three sets of 14? The significance is not altogether clear. He just tells us that he does it. He doesn't really tell us why he does it. It may be to emphasize uh, with these four uh, or six groups of seven, three groups of 14. It might be to emphasize uh, fulfillment or completeness of Jewish history because the Jews saw the number seven as a symbol of, of fullness and completeness. It could also be that the number 14 has a special connection to David, and so by stamping the genealogy with 14, 14, 14, Matthew's saying, David, 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 Christ is the son of David. I think both of those explanations are possible. It could also just be an aid for memorization. If you take a big list of names and you want to memorize them, you have to put them into groups, and Matthew choose, chooses groups of 14. But whatever the case may be, we can say with Paul in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, these familiar words, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is a complete genealogy, not exhaustive. Some generations are skipped over and not named. But it is complete for the purposes of establishing Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this third section of the genealogy is the most obscure, um, but it gives us the critical link between the Jews and their Messiah, their Christ. It establishes for us both David's legitimate claim or Christ's legitimate claim to David's throne through Joseph's parentage, uh, his adopted father's parentage, but also establishes for us the invincible persistence of God's purpose to save his people suffering under the curse of sin. God's purpose to save sinners is unstoppable. Not even exile or obscurity or poverty can stop God's purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. When everybody else forgets who descended from David... God remembers and is faithful to send the Messiah, even through David's house, descended into obscurity and poverty. The reality of this obscurity, of this national humiliation of the Jews, of the downfall of a once majestic royal family diminished to poverty and to oppression under foreign rule under the Romans, it parallels Again, our miserable condition into which we're born as suffering sinners, as sinful sufferers, lacking the freedom that's found in fellowship with God through Christ and by His Spirit. We read Jeremiah's lament, and in Lamentations 3.11 he says, He has made me desolate. 
And if you think that you were born into this world with anything more than desolation, moral desolation, then you are operating under a delusion. We can confess with Jeremiah. In fact, he has made us desolate. But Jeremiah goes on. In verse 24, he says, The Lord, using that covenant name, Jehovah, is my portion. Therefore, I have hope in him. And the hope of the Jews was for divine deliverance. For, for Yahweh to stretch out his arm and to save them through a promised Messiah of the house of David. And that Messiah is Jesus Christ. Here at the end of this genealogy. Jesus is great David the king's greater son. The king of kings and lord of lords. And because of that, because of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We too can rejoice at his coming. He comes to save. Nothing can stop him. For this is God's unstoppable purpose. And we see that reinforced at the end of verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Next week, not to jump ahead, but Lord willing, we will consider the virgin birth of Christ as it is described in verses 18 to 25. But here in the second half of verse 16, the miracle is implied for us by the grammar of the Greek text. And, and, and I think the NASB uh, translators try to capture that for us. Throughout this genealogy, Matthew has described each link of the chain as father begat son. It's really better expressed in the King James Version and in the New King James Version than it is in the New American Standard Bible that we're using. But in any case, in verse 16, the verb changes. And we read, instead of Abraham begat Isaac, for example, we read, Jesus was born of Mary. Jesus is of the house of Joseph. That's been established here for us. Matthew took great pains to establish the fact that Jesus is of David's house through Joseph. But Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. And Matthew doesn't shy away from that reality. Rather, he quite obviously avoids giving any impression that Joseph is Jesus' biological father. At the time of this gospel circulation, the enemies of Christ, those who would seek to destroy the church, they were spreading all kinds of false reports and rumors concerning Christ's resurrection, saying that his disciples stole his body away and, and lied about him coming back to life, but also about his birth, calling his mother an adulteress and a fornicator, calling um, you know, all kinds of, of rumors. But Matthew looks them square in the face, and he says, Jesus was born of Mary, who was the wife of Joseph, a descendant of David and of Abraham, and this Jesus is the Christ. And what was his point? Jesus has a legitimate claim on the lineage of Joseph. Joseph's line was Jesus' line, but Joseph did not put Jesus into that line. Joseph did not make Jesus a descendant of David. Rather, God did. This was God's doing, God's miraculous work. Jesus' place in the line of David as the seed of Abraham is a work of God and not of man. 
And we'll consider this in greater depth next week. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because we're just getting started with the Gospel of Matthew. You see, in this evening, in the first 17 verses here, we've entered into the vestibule, the lobby, the front room of a royal palace. And the first thing we see on the wall is a, is a, is a rather curious, multi-generational family portrait drawing our attention to the reigning monarch in the house, Christ Jesus, the King of Kings. This portrait tells the story of a particular family belonging to a particular people, but destined by God to bless all the nations of the world. See, what I've sought to show you this evening is that Christ's royal lineage shows us God's worldwide, gracious, and unstoppable purpose to save mankind from the curse of sin. And we've looked at this in, in three parts, matching the three parts of the genealogy. God's worldwide purpose to save, God's gracious purpose to save, and then finally, God's unstoppable purpose to save. Christ came as king, not merely to judge and to exert his authority and to lay claim to the world, though he does those things. But he came to save us as his church, not for any merit of our own, not because we're so smart or we're so good or we're so righteous or we're so rich or powerful or whatever, but solely as an enactment of God's gracious purpose founded upon the Father's love from eternity past, which has been set upon wretched and miserable sinners like you and me. Sinners with names like Judah and Tamar and Rahab and David. Nothing can stop him. You see, because he's come as a king, hasn't he? Of a king's house. Not tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can stop His purpose. You see, none of these things can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that truth it rings across these foreign names, this genealogy. Nothing can stop King Jesus. Nothing can overwhelm His Spirit. And do you believe that this is true? Do you trust the King? If so, if you embrace the message of the Gospel, and of the Gospel of Matthew, which opens with this message, Embedded in a list of names, detailing a national history with global significance, nothing can separate you from the Father's love. Nothing. Nothing can keep you out of this king's house, out of his kingdom. Not even the gates of hell will withstand the assault of King Christ who saves us and leads us forth from Matthew chapter 1 to the end of the book, even to the end of the age. But as it is for Abraham, for David, for Joseph, for Mary, and for all the people of God in every age and in every place, the love of God, His life-giving presence, and all His saving benefits are enjoyed, and I cannot say this enough, through the faith which He bestows as a gift of divine grace. Brothers and sisters, it is all of grace. 
God's worldwide unstoppable grace and salvation. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.